Welcome to the December 6th front page articles of the Angus Beef Bulletin Extra. Thanks for joining us here on Angus Beef Bulletin Audio. I'm Shauna Hermel, your editor. We hope you'll enjoy listening to the stories in our December newsletter. If you have any questions or comments, please let us know at abbeditorial at angus.org. Now, let's get started with the three stories in this section. Kelly Retallick Riley, president of Angus Genetics Incorporated, talks about the advantage within. U.S. Mark data confirms the breed offers the best combination of growth, calving ease, and carcass value in addition to being naturally pulled with great maternal value. The naturally pulled head, dark skin around the eyes, and superb mothering abilities helped Angus gain early popularity. The dominance of the black coat color made Angus easily recognizable, but what makes the breed most special could be what is under the hide. Genetic change and progress have been rapid in the Angus breed due to the commitment of seed stock breeders to data collection, from birth and weaning weights to carcass ultrasound collection and now fertility and temperament recording, Angus breeders are working to describe their genetics to the best of their ability. Coupled with advanced expertise in data analysis, the American Angus Association has worked to present the best genetic description of Angus cattle anywhere in the world. The Angus database is a leader in its kind. Annually, the association registers more than 300,000 head in its herd book, record, records more than 400,000 birth weights, and submits more than 180,000 genomic tests. In total, it contains millions upon millions of individual weight records, as well as hundreds of thousands of observations for foot confirmation, fertility, and environmental adaptability. With that, it utilizes the world's largest genomic database, with more than 1.1 million genotypes being used weekly to describe Angus genetics. What's in it for you? What does that mean to the commercial cattleman? Well, it gives you peace of mind when you are buying a registered Angus bull that his genetic descriptions are the best, most robust, and most accurate picture of genetic merit in the industry. These genetic descriptions, known as expected progeny differences, are updated weekly at the American Angus Association to ensure the most current and recent information is utilized. However, did you know that not all EPDs are created equal? In fact, EPDs from different breeds, like Charlet, Hereford, Brahmin, and Angus, cannot be directly compared against one another. While EPDs have been responsible for substantial genetic progress over the years, EPDs are generally only comparable within each breed. That's because different breed information, such as the performance weights and measures I described, are generally kept in separate herd books of origin. With that, each breed links its genetic valuation back to a different base population, making it nearly impossible to effectively compare EPDs on different breeds at the surface. For this reason, since 1993, the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center, or USMARC, has provided a table of adjustment factors these third-party adjustment factors are derived from the U.S. Mark Germplasm Evaluation Project, 
in which the group uses a herd of commercial cows bred to several prominent sires of each of the most popular breeds used in the U.S. beef industry. From there, the group determines breed differences among the progeny that have been given the same management and resources to perform. They then adjust the different expressed they then adjust the differences expressed in these progeny by the differences of the sire EPDs that were sampled in the project. The cross-breed adjustment factors use simple math to adjust, for example, a Hereford bull to an Angus base. The adjustment factors in Table 1, available in the article online, can be added to the respective within-breed EPD to adjust it to an Angus base. After cross-breed adjustments are applied, a commercial producer can directly compare the resulting cross-breed EPDs amongst the different breeds. This allows for fair comparison, whereas before, producers could be misled by base adjustments in a different population. Table 2, also available in the article online, describes the average EPDs for each breed for the 2020 birth year converted to an Angus base using the 2022 U.S. mark crossbreed adjustment factors. The project also benchmarks breed mean sire differences, which explains the average breed of sire differences when bulls from two different breeds are mated to cows of a third unrelated breed. It is noteworthy to mention that these differences could be greater or smaller in comparison when conditions vary greatly from those commercial cow-calf conditions experienced at U.S. Mark in Nebraska. When comparing those breed-of-sire averages, Angus continues to have some of the lightest birth weights, heaviest yearling and carcass weights, and best marbling scores compared to other breeds in the beef industry. Table 3, available in the article online, shows the breed of sire means for 2020 born animals under conditions similar to those at U.S. Mark for birth weight, yearling weight, carcass weight, and marbling score. As one can see, the Angus advantage continues. Not only is the breed still naturally pulled with great maternal abilities, it also offers the best combination of growth, calving ease, and carcass value. Visit the URL provided in the article to see a full list of the crossbreed adjustment factors published by U.S. Mark. As an editor's note, the sorting gate column authored by AGI staff features herd improvement topics for commercial producers using Angus genetics. For additional information on performance programs, visit www.angus.org and select Topics under the Management tab. For our second article on the front page, Ian Kane, who served as a regional manager for the American Angus Association the last few months, offers the association perspective titled People, Invest in Your Biggest Asset. What is the greatest challenge the U.S. beef industry faces? I have asked this question frequently since becoming involved in the beef industry. You might expect to hear answers relating to rising input costs, urban development, water resources, or supply chain disruptions. However, one issue rises above the rest, the availability of labor. Drive down Main Street anywhere in America. 
I would be surprised if you did not see a handful of businesses displaying signs reading help wanted or now hiring. Challenges in the labor market are being felt in all sectors of business, not just agriculture. To make a tough issue tougher, even when labor is available, prospective candidates are often deficient in key areas considered essential by the employer. Now that we have identified the challenge, how are we going to overcome it? When facing an endeavor of this complexity, it is essential to first review what strategies have been implemented in the past and determine their effectiveness. Next, we must seek to understand the motivation of the available workforce. What gets candidates excited about their work? How do we motivate them to take ownership of our operation's mission and goals? What are the best methods to increase satisfaction in the workplace, incentivize productivity, and create an engaging culture. Lastly, we need to utilize the conclusions drawn from the two previous steps to stimulate innovative recruitment strategies that attract prospective candidates, then engage and develop them once hired. This extra step is key to maximize their value to the operation and secure the future success of both employee and employer. How do we go about recruiting new team members? Two of the most popular strategies are reaching out to personal and industry contacts and displaying positions in a digital format, such as a company website, job board, social media, etc. Radio, print, and outdoor advertising are used to a lesser extent. Utilizing your network may identify qualified candidates at a higher rate but it will likely generate a limited number of candidates. This can be problematic for organizations needing to fill multiple roles. Digital recruitment is complex. Its strength is its ability to reach numerous candidates at an inexpensive or sometimes even free rate in different geographic areas, industries, and social cir circles. This method also has some weaknesses. It can produce a high volume of candidates, which increases the amount of time invested in sorting applications and evaluating candidates. Also, some candidates may show less commitment in early stages of the interview process because they are seeking placement in multiple positions and have not yet established a relationship with your operation. With these observations in place, Effort can be directed to uncovering the motivations of the workforce. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. People's motivations can be as diverse as the candidates themselves. However, there are a few key strategies that can be implemented with a high rate of success. The most important strategy is to create a culture of value. The sage advice of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care rings true. Be intentional within your business to not only meet the needs of your employees, but to exceed them where you can. Perhaps you could successfully recruit a candidate for a $50,000 annual salary, but what could you gain by offering $60,000? Maybe they'd be happy to have basic health insurance, but what if you offered to match their investments in a 401k program to help secure their future? Can you offer a side of beef to the mix? What about a company vehicle? Rural housing can be an issue. 
Can you provide housing? It goes beyond compensation. Positions in the agricultural field rarely operate on a set schedule. Early mornings, late nights, and weekends are part of the lifestyle. This industry is not for the faint of heart, as Mother Nature enjoys challenging us with drought, snow, mud, dust, floods, fires, heat, cold, and more. Increasingly, today's labor force desires intangible benefits. Words like balance, flexibility, purpose, and fulfillment are often used to describe these expectations. To put this in context, you can generate large dividends on small sacrifices by making your employees' priorities your priorities. For example, let's say you need to vaccinate calves and had budgeted time on Saturday for your crew to accomplish this task. However, three of your five employees had hoped to be done in time to be present at their kids' ball game. As an employer, what could you gain by moving the processing to Monday? Your loss in terms of disease prevention is minimal by delaying vaccination 48 hours. However, by allowing your team to be present for their families, you have built trust, increased loyalty, boosted morale, and strengthened their motivation to see your business succeed. I would categorize all these non-tangible assets relationship capital. Teams with high amounts of relationship capital will be more productive, take more ownership, produce higher quality products, and will collectively sacrifice more to achieve the shared goals of the organization. Not only does this make your current team more effective and increase the long-term sustainability of your operation, but it has the potential to attract new candidates as your operation earns a reputation for being the premier place to work. An elite organizational culture appreciates as an asset by making the current team more successful and functioning as a marketing tool to recruit future candidates. As an employer, the next time you are faced with adversity or are in a vulnerable position, this relationship capital could be the difference in success or failure of your business. Now ask yourself, what generated more value for your business? Vaccinating calves two days earlier or making your people a priority? The next strategy is to hire based on character, not credentials. I'm not advocating you hire people who are incompetent simply because you have an opening. All that accomplishes is setting both parties up for failure and threatening to weaken your culture of value. The strategy I am trying to illustrate is explained well by author Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't, as first who, then what. He frames his idea using a metaphor comparing companies and their staff as passengers on a bus. The first who, then what concept relies on getting the right people on the bus and then figuring out how to get those people in the right seats before ever considering what the final destination of the bus is. In business and in life, the only guarantee is that there are no guarantees. It's not a matter of if challenges will arise, but when challenges will arise. 
That is why it is essential to build a team based on who the people are, not what they know. That way, when your business is faced with a challenge, your people are your greatest asset and not your greatest liability. With the right culture, time, and investment in training, you can teach someone new skills. It is much more difficult to change a person's character to exhibit integrity, work ethic, curiosity, courage, etc. Adopting this mindset in the recruitment process may lead you to consider candidates with the right character traits that previously would have been overlooked simply because they felt short on experience. With a culture of value, inexperienced candidates that align with your culture can develop the skill sets needed to contribute to your operation. We have a long way to go to fill the current and future labor needs of the agriculture industry. It is essential we find a way to make this industry rewarding and profitable enough to encourage the next generation of rural America to come back to the farm. But we cannot stop there. We also need to attract candidates from more urbanized backgrounds back into our industry. By building a culture of value and hiring character, not credentials, I believe we will be able to make meaningful progress toward these aspirations. Once you get the right people on the bus and in the right seats and the wrong people off the bus, then you can figure out where the bus is going. For further information on the first who, then what concept, visit the URL provided in the article. With the right people in place, it's time to invest in developing you and your team to maximize the opportunities for personal and professional success. How do organizational leaders go about training new, possibly inexperienced team members? Here are a few resources for industry networking, professional development, and education that are specific to the beef industry. Some are open to all ages and experience levels. Others will be more targeted to younger members of the agricultural community. Arranging for your employees to apply for or participate in these programs is a simple, easy first step to take as an employer to invest in your workforce. Ian provides a list of potential meetings and educational programs. Um, there's probably 30 to 40 of them listed in the article, and I encourage you to uh, go online and, and thumb through those for more information. As an editor's note, Ian Kane concluded his regional manager internship for the American Angus Association December 2nd. He didn't grow up on a farm or a ranch, but rather sought entry into the agriculture industry through education. He holds a bachelor's degree in food and agricultural business from the University of Tennessee and has completed internships with Yon Family Farms, South Carolina, Thomas Angus Ranch of Oregon, Wolf Cattle of Nebraska, Golden Belt Feeders of Kansas, and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, as well as the American Angus Association. You can click on the URL provided in the article to access the regional manager for your state. All right, to wrap up our front page articles for the December 6th edition, the University of Missouri provides an article with seven tips for lowering the winter feed bill. 
Extension Livestock Specialist offers tips for getting livestock through the winter on fewer dollars. Pasture and hay supplies are short in many areas. University of Missouri Extension Livestock Specialist Gene Schmitz has a number of options for livestock producers to consider for feeding their livestock this winter. Test hay. This is the simplest, most cost-effective practice you can do, says Schmitz. Sort hay supplies into quality groups and mash the hay to the nutritional needs of each group of livestock. Then feed the appropriate supplement, if necessary, to each group separately based on their nutritional needs and quality of hay being fed. Reduce waste. Poor feeding practices can result in hay wastage of more than 25%. Cone-type hay feeders or tapered bottom feeders greatly reduce hay waste, especially if they have a bottom skirt. If unrolling, limit the amount of hay being unrolled at a given time. Unrolling more than one day's feeding will substantially increase hay waste. 3. Store bales to reduce waste. It's a bit late for this now, Schmidt said, but another substantial source of hay waste is how the hay is stored. If covered hay storage is not a possibility, at least take measures to break soil-hay contact. Building rock pads or storing bales on pallets, tires, or some other surface reduces waste on the bottom of the bale. 4. Fencing. Producers fortunate enough to have pasture or crop residues to graze can divide the fields into smaller areas with temporary fencing materials, Smith says. These are easy to move and can greatly extend the number of grazing days from a given area. Fencing to provide one or two weeks grazing is acceptable. 5. Limit feeding options. With adequate quality forage, limiting cow access to hay feeders can reduce waste while achieving acceptable performance. 12-hour access seems to be a good compromise between performance and waste reduction, Smith says. Do not attempt this without a hay test, however. Cows can be limit-fed a high-grain ration. This meets energy needs with less feed. Compare the cost of grain versus hay on a per-unit-of-energy basis. When considering this option, some producers graze standing milo as an effective, lower-cost way to feed cows through the winter. 6. Know what bales weigh. Let's assume 1,200-pound bales can be purchased for $75 per bale, or $125 per ton, Smith says. If transportation and feeding losses are 25%, this means that only 900 pounds from each bale of hay actually gets into the livestock. This increases hay costs to $0.08 cents per pound or $167 per ton. If losses are cut to 10%, then 1,080 pounds of hay is consumed. This reduces hay costs to just under $0.07 cents per pound or $140 per ton, he says. Push the pencil very hard if buying high-priced hay. 7. Choose who to feed. Finally, Schmitz advises, it may be more beneficial for the operation in the long run to cull animals rather than to try to purchase enough feed for the winter. This is not a one-size-fits-all option, however, 
So figure your operational costs and evaluate tax and other financial implications before making final decisions. As an editor's note, this article was provided by the University of Missouri Extension. To find similar articles, you can follow the URL provided in the article. We also have a sidebar to drill deeper with articles that have been published in the extra uh, that go into a little more detail in each of the seven um, cost savings. Thanks for listening to these three front page articles in the December 6th edition of the Angus Beef Bulletin Extra. Again, if you have any comments or suggestions, please let us know at abbeditorial at angus.org. Thanks, and we hope you'll visit the other pages in this edition to read further articles.